Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, trying to do something, you know, you get grandkids, you try to do special things with them. And so I kind of like pick my spots with each one or, you know, different ones, uh, different ways. And, but I had uh, Eli and Justice yet yesterday, and I took uh, Galilee, or I should say Ariel out today for a little bit. And then uh, while we were driving, I thought, I always try to use my time and try to teach them and encourage them. They're, they're young, you know. And uh, so I gave them a little, you know, assignment and said by the time we, you know, we're going to golf and stuff for a little bit, you know. I said, before we get there, I go, you guys have to get, you guys have to know the answers to these questions, you know. And I gave, there's two questions and there's two answers to both of those questions. And it, 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 the, the, the questions and the answers all came from, uh, you know, Eli talking about, you know, somebody who had like pushed somebody off you know, several floors of a building and in, in a wheelchair, just pushed them off and how, how bad, how, how evil that is and how wrong that is. And I asked them a question. I go, Eli, so this kind of, this was, a lot of the way I do devotions with my kids and my grandkids are, you know, the Bible says when you wake up in the morning, you know, in the, or, you know, when you're laying in your bed or when you're walking along the way to teach them God's word, amen. And I just asked Eli, I go, Eli, how do you know that's wrong? You know, how do you know it's wrong to push somebody out of a building several floors up that's in a wheelchair. Now, intuitively, we would all say, it's obviously wrong. But objectively, if we've all basically evolved as animals from slime, right, there's really no measurement as to what's right and wrong, no objective transcendent uh, measuring stick as to what is right or wrong. It would just be a bunch of gases that have just evolved. And one gas would be just push another gas out of, out of a window. Uh, so... I asked him that. He's like, what do you mean? Of course it's wrong. And intuitively, we have a conscience, right? So we know deep down, God's given us conscience means with knowledge, right? We're born with some knowledge, amen? And, but I didn't want him simply to go, well, because I feel it's wrong. Because when you talk to an atheist, talk to Hitler in the past, not now, he's dead. Uh, he would feel it would be right to kill millions of Jews, right? So, and that would be the feeling of a lot of those in the, you know, in National Socialism, Nazi Party, so I asked him, how do you know it's wrong, you know? And then finally he gave me a good answer, but, uh, and Justice was in on it too, you know, and Eli's nine and Justice is a couple years younger. And I, he said, uh, because the Bible says that killing people's wrong. I go, that's a good answer. I go, but what about when you're on the streets? And they like to go street witnessing here and there. So I went to prepare them for answers, right? I go, well, what about when you're on the streets and people say, well, why should I believe the Bible? I, you're, I go, you're, I told them, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're giving a good response, but you want to go a little deeper now. And he goes, because it's the Word of God. I go, amen, I agree with that. But they don't. How can you prove that something's right or wrong? And then I gave him some examples. And, and I, started with, uh, I started with something, you know, like, well, you know, what about how do you even know the Bible's accurately? First of all, how do you know it's true? And secondly, how do you know it's been you know, accurately transmitted down through the centuries. And I know, kind of heady <laughs> uh, subject matter for kids that aren't yet 10 years old, but we had all the way to golf and stuff to talk about it. <laughs> so poor kids, it's like torture at times, I know, you know. He goes, this is what my dad does. I'm out of breath just listening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go, oh, that's good, Chad. Keep it up, you know. And, uh, but... 
I mentioned to him because, you know, they gave a telephone. That's what you'll talk to. You talk to atheists or skeptics. They'll say, oh, well, the Bible, you know, was written, you know, thousands of, a couple thousand years ago, the New Testament letters, and even before that, the Old Testament letters. And, and we talked a little bit about how the Old Testament scribes, man, they would like wash their hands after they'd write like the name God, right? Every time they hit God. They, I mean, they were so meticulous. But the New Testament scribes that copied it, they didn't say, I'm going to wash my hands every time I write a certain word. They were about getting as many copies out as possible. But both of these methods worked really good in God preserving his word. So I talked to them about the game telephone and how you say something and by the time it goes around the whole room or the circle, it's totally different. And that's what some skeptics will tell you guys. Well, it's like the game telephone is the Bible's been around so many years and it's been translated over and over again. How can you know it's true? I go, what's your response going to be? Or how can you know, not even whether it's true yet, how can you know it's, it's properly copied and transmitted? And then you have to answer the question as to what's true. And I called for two different answers. I gave them the answers. It took them a while to, they had to, they had to give me the right answer on their own without me reminding them. I reminded them over and over again. <laughs> but then it was time, okay, what are the two answers? And then they had to give me, uh, explain what the reasons were. So in the answers, of the two, two of the answers to that, which we don't have time to really get into because I want to get into the cross a bit, but this relates to the cross and the resurrection, how we can know. So the answers uh, I was looking for is the proximity of the manuscripts to the original copies. And I use, instead of proximity, I use the word closeness, that the copies of the, of the, of the biblical writings are so close to the originals, uh, closer than all the ancient prize works of antiquity. That just blows you away. Like, you know, you look at writings of Homer or, you know, Caesar's Wars and so forth. And some of these things are hundreds of years later, but you go to a history class, you know, and they talk about this is what he wrote. This is what Homer wrote, you know. Yet we have manuscripts that are, that are several manuscripts that are shortly after the originals would have been written. That's, that's mind-blowing. In fact, we don't only win in the closeness race, and isn't it cool that God does that? We also win in the, so one answer was closeness, was also not just closeness, but many. We have thousands of manuscripts, not just a few. You have a few of this and a few of that when we talk about some of the guys I just mentioned. You have, a, you know, eight of this and seven of that or whatever. We have thousands of biblical manuscripts that bear witness, and, and many of them in close proximity to the original writings. So that way we can know. And then I kind of got into a little bit deeper. And I said, but what about the New Testament writers who are making so many copies so early on? What if somebody messed up? You know, well, no problem. You know why? What if I was up here today or you're in some class at the college or university and you're called to, you know, say the professor writes up a bunch of stuff on the blackboard and you're supposed to copy it. Say there's 50 people in the classroom and all 50 copy it, Right? Well, some, one or two or three are bound to, in fact, many of them are bound to make a mistake here or there, right? But the cool thing is, when you bring all those copies together, they're not making the mistakes in the same place, right? Most of them are going to be what? Accurate in the same place. The differences will be here and there, and you'll be able to tell very easily which where the mistakes were versus where, what the original writing was. Are you with me? Okay. And if it goes over your head, it's okay. It went over their heads, you know, a little bit. But we had a good talk. So that was closeness and I'm not going to go on until you guys tell me. Man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> closeness and amount of numbers. Proximity and 
and a multitude of manuscripts. And, and we also talked about, then I mentioned to them, I tried to make it entertaining for them. <laughs> then I asked, okay, well, how do we know they're true, though? Because you can have them, the copies are accurate, right? That's more than reasonable. And I go, but how do you know? Because you can have a copy of something that's false, even though it's been passed down correctly. How do you know it's true? And we got into eyewitness accounts. And we talked about, I just gave them a story that if the three of us witnessed something, when we get to golf and stuff, and when we witnessed somebody taking some lady's handbag and beating her up and running off with it, the eyewitnesses accounts of just one or two credible witnesses, we talked about what it means to be credible, would suffice, right? And I said, that's how it works in the law. If you have good witnesses, man, you win a court case. And you also could have bad witnesses. And we talked about what that was, to have a witness. And for instance, I gave them this great big scenario, but then I had another false witness step up to the judge and say, you know, that, that didn't happen. So-and-so didn't take her handbag. I was an eyewitness of that. And he says the opposite, but he's not a credible witness. Why? Because he was out of the country at the time. He just got out of prison for fraud, you know, and then he was out of the country. And, and we went into this whole thing, and they understood credible witnesses versus, and we talked about how credible the witnesses are of Jesus' resurrection. How credible are these witnesses? They were those who witnessed, they knew he died. They knew he was murdered on a cross. They'd seen the resurrected Christ. Many of them went to their deaths, right? They went back to the same place to preach over and over again, even though they'd get flogged and beaten and threatened, right? Why would you do that? And they were dirt poor, right? I mean, they were leaving, you know, their, their, their boat business, not just a tax collector, but we don't have time to get into it. But if you look at uh, Peter and James and John and if you look at their, they actually had a business that was actually doing pretty decent when you look at the narrative. Uh, they left all that, you know, and they were credible witnesses. And it wasn't just a few, several people. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, over 500 people had seen the resurrected Christ. That's pretty powerful. And then we also went into prophecy. And I told them, I said, hey, and there was a mountain up ahead. And I go, we're driving up to the, toward a mountain. I'm like, because uh, we're off the freeway. And I turn, I go, what if that mountain, I said, all of a sudden it was going to be a volcano. And, like, and, within, and I told you right exactly as we're driving and when it's going to start. And I go, we'd stop because it caused a lot of havoc. And then I gave one prediction after another. And I said, I kept getting all these predictions right. I gave them very absurd predictions to keep their attention, you know. Uh, and I said, what if I got all those right? And sometimes when I'm on the street, I'll do this. I'll witness to people. I'll say, what if I said there's going to be an earthquake? And I'll say, boom, there's an earthquake. And I said, this was going to happen. And then inevitably I'll say, and then after I give them seven or eight, then I say, and then I said, this can happen. Would you believe me? They always say, and the kids, Eli goes, of course I believe you. I go, why? You said everything else right. I go, that's right. I go, the God of the Bible says that he tells the end from the beginning. We have Bible prophecy. And I went into a few of the prophecies that are easier for them to understand and digest, like Israel rejecting her Messiah, Israel being scattered throughout the nations, Israel being brought back to becoming a nation again in 1948 after almost 2,000 years. Never happened with any other nation. And I gave them a few prophecies. And those same things I was sharing with them, uh, those very simple things will get, go a long way if you're, in, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody who's actually interested. You can get more specific if I had more time uh, to develop some of the things I'm talking about, I'd give you the talk about how many manuscripts and how many manuscripts of, you have of, of this ancient writer and that ver ancient writer versus manuscripts of the Bible and how close they are. And we get into all that and, and so forth. And, and I did a, a series one time called 21 Reasons to Trust the Bible. 
Prophecy was just one of them. Manuscript evidence was just one of them. Uh, and maybe we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get into that in, in, in the near future sometime. But you guys, we have so much. The, the, we have the Word of God here, amen? And I just love how the Lord, he, how he preserved his Word, closeness in many manuscripts, amen? And how he's got a prophecy and he says, I show you that I'm the one true God because I'm the only one who can consistently tell us the end from the beginning. And he talks about my ancient nation. He says, I'll tell you about my ancient people. And that's one of the, that's like super sign number one. 1B, 1A is Jesus, his resurrection, amen. We'll call it 1B. Uh, so we have, you know, not only great transmission and a solid, uh, the book here. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried a couple hundred years before Christ was born? I mean, that's amazing because there's whole parts of Old Testament books in the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the book of Isaiah, I mean, 66 chapters, Isaiah. I've been in the Dead Sea Scroll Museum. When they come in my office, Eli will go, that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls were in, right? Well, not that one. I just have a replica. Eli, it's just a little replica, you know, that somebody gave me as a gift. It's, it's, it's great. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, some were saying, you know, well, how do we know Isaiah? Because, you know, we have a, a 10th century Masoretic text of Isaiah. But how do we know it wasn't changed through the years? Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 years before Christ, 1,200 years before the Masoretic text, give or take a little bit of time. And guess what? You're able to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, set it aside the Masoretic text, and it's the same exact message, you know, showing God's preserved his word. Amen? But what's interesting in that Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 it's all about Christ's death for our sins and even his resurrection, amen? And it's so powerful that when you go to the Jewish synagogues and you go through Isaiah in the Jewish synagogues, it's time to go through Isaiah. When they hit Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, I've shared this with you before, you know what they do? They skip it. Let's go now to uh, where, Isaiah 51. Okay, Isaiah 54. Why? Because it's so obviously about Jesus 700 years before he was crucified. Psalm 22, where it talks about how to divide up his garments, his hands and his feet will be pierced, right? And all these incredible things, 900 years before it happened, describing crucifixion. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians, which the first uh, crucifixion we read about wasn't until the 6th century before Christ by the Persians, and that was actually a dead person that a king hated, an emperor hated, and he dug him up and had him impaled to a cross. And then after that, the Greeks took it, and then the Romans took it. But when it was written in 900, the Jews were not uh, nailing people to trees who were alive. You know? Uh, they would put a person on a tree after they stoned him to death at times, just as a warning, don't do this. But actually nailing living bodies to the to, the, to uh, crosses, first by the Persians, then and also the Greeks, and uh, Romans did it, of course, when Jesus was around. And crucifixion is really barbaric, you know, uh, but it was meant to be barbaric. It was meant to be the most imaginably painful death you could experience. It was done for a reason. It was the most gruesome thing you could witness, and it was done to cause people that would consider committing crimes against the state or insurrectionists great trembling and fear so they wouldn't even want they're like I am not gonna you know 
And it was, you weren't even allowed to, you know, it was not used in proper Roman dialogue. In fact, they rarely wrote about it because it was a shameful thing. And, you, and your Roman citizens in good standing, it was illegal to crucify, uh, you know, uh, the Romans who were in good standing and, and so forth. And I'm talking about wealthy. You could, you know, slaves, it was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. And it was the most painful way to die. And of course, it makes sense why Jesus would experience that. So last time we were together, I started a little series called, uh, you know, Ways That Jesus Suffered Hell on the Cross for Us. Some people teach that Jesus actually suffered in hell. That's a false teaching, okay? That's a false teaching. Uh, Calvin uh, taught that in his institutes. The word faith teachers teach that uh, Jesus suffered in hell for our sins. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says uh, it was finished on the cross, amen? That's where Jesus said to tell us that it is finished, amen? It says he suffered for our sins on the, in, on the tree in First Peter chapter 2 and several other places. But, well, how does that actually pay for our sins, though, if he didn't actually go to hell? Well, he experienced the pain and the experiences that people will have in hell on the cross. And last Sunday, what did we look at? Father God, please be with us and open our eyes to appreciate the beauty and the love of Christ and what he's done for us, the height, depth, width, and length of your love for us in Christ Jesus, Father. Amen. What's that, buddy? Darkness. Amen. So last Sunday, good job, man. You would have been great teaming up with Eli and uh, we went to sat in the parking lot up there in golf and stuff for 25 more minutes. No, I'm kidding. I made sure they were done by the time we rolled in there. Although I did kind of get lost for a few minutes, you know. I didn't want them to wait in the parking lot. That would be so painful. Anyway, yeah, uh, Toby mentions darkness. We talked about two different ways that Jesus suffered what, what the lost will suffer in hell for the sins of the world. And one was darkness. We spent quite a bit of time on that, didn't we? And we got into a pretty cool Bible study. And usually right now as I'm talking in this week, people will be talking about the physical pain that Jesus suffered. And I say what they miss to me, and it's just as important, is the spiritual and emotional anguish that he went through along with the physical pain. And one was experiencing darkness. And that darkness, it became dark over the earth, right? But that darkness was not pointed at everybody else, was it? Who was it pointed at? Jesus. I believe Jesus experienced that darkness in ways other people didn't experience that darkness because it was targeted at him. And we went through scripture where the Bible describes hell as being outer darkness and the blackest of darkness. We looked at God's judgments of darkness even upon the Egyptians during the 10 plagues. It was darkness they could feel. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to God, if possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't think, I think our brains are too small to really totally comprehend what he was facing at the cross. Because here you have the living son of God, right? Fearless, sets his faith toward Jerusalem. Yet in the garden, and he was under a spiritual attack from the enemy too. But when he contemplated what he was going to go through on the cross, you see, as I mentioned earlier, the crucifixion was designed to be the most painful, gruesome death anyone could experience. And, and people could argue, we could say arguably, right? 
But with Jesus, it's not argued. You can't argue it. Because he didn't just experience crucifixion. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. So he took upon not only a penalty of my sins, which would be bad enough, but your sins would be really bad. No, just kidding. All of our sins collectively are really, really, really bad, right? Sometimes I feel like Paul when he said he was the chief of sinners in my past life before Jesus. And then you're taking Judas's sins. He even offered Judas a cup that he said is poured out for you. To all of them, but he offered it to Judas too. Go to Luke, you'll see Judas is still there when he offers it. It's, the Bible says he tasted death for everyone. It says it's a payment, not only or a propitiation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen? Amen. So it's, it's important that you understand what he went through was so intense. And that's where we talk about how he went through hematridosis, which I won't spend a lot of time on. But his capillaries popped, and along with the sweat that hit the ground, it was mixed with blood. Because the intense, and I mentioned to you, I saw a documentary years ago that was secular documentary just talking about hematridosis and how forensic science has only found just over 100 people that have experienced it of the billions of people that have lived. It's only been a, just over 100 cases. And it's in, incredible, intense stress and emotional trauma. Well, this is the Son of God facing the cross. And he said, if possible, Father, take this cup from me. If possible, right? But not my will, but what? Your will be done. I mean, and when he's saying if possible, he's saying if there's some kind of possibility where people can still be saved, where you can redeem the masses, apart from me, experiencing your wrath, whom I've been with from eternity past, amen? And undergo your wrath and your displeasure, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Amen. Can you imagine that? We, we get our brains around a little bit. And that's why I said one of my main prayers, one of the main prayers I pray over and over again for the fellowship. Lord, help us to understand the height and depth and width and length of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Because I believe the more we understand who he is and how much he loves us, the more we hate to sin. We hate to do anything that would break his heart or displease him or bring dishonor upon him. Amen. He was forgiven much what? Loves much, amen? Amen? And we love him because he what? Because he first loved us, amen? That's why it's important for your walk with Jesus to think about the cross, to think about what he went through. You're struggling being obedient? Think about what he went through for you to save you, how much pain he suffered. And every accumulative sin that we've committed added to his suffering in some way we don't understand. And you say, yeah, but he already suffered. Yeah, but guess what? He foreknows what you would do and he suffered for those sins, amen? So what you do did affect the cross in some mysterious way. Now, when we think of this and him saying, and, and, and I return to that. I mention hematidosis every once in a while because it continually blows my mind that that's the intensity he went through. And we need to remember these things. We need to remember what he went through. If possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet it wasn't possible. How do you know it wasn't possible? Because he went to the cross. And Jesus said, the Father always hears me. He said that. Well, he, he, he didn't hear him there. Yeah, he did. Jesus didn't say, hey, I don't want this to happen. He said, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Amen? 
And Jesus could have been extracted from the situation. He told Pilate, I could call 12 legions of angels and they would deliver me, right? But he chose to bear the pain. And last time we talked about darkness that he went through, we talked about one other thing that he went through. Separation, right? A sense of separation. We don't believe that he stopped being God, the Son, right? Because the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are united as triune. But he experienced a sense of separation in that he was continually used to experiencing the, the love and favor of God, amen? And now he's experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve. He was condemned so we could be accepted as we sing, amen? And he experienced God's wrath upon himself. And that just is so mind-boggling. So we looked at him suffering darkness and a sense of separation. To the point he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was, to me, if you have a very deep, beautiful relationship or have had relationships or you can have a relationship even as a kid with, a, a, you know, you meet, the, you know, you're a guy and you meet the girl that you think is the girl of your dreams, you know, in a, you know, junior high or elementary school or high school, we've all had different experiences, and then you barely know her, right? And then, or the opposite, the, the guy of your dreams, and you're so excited, you got these butterflies and whatever else happens, you know? And you don't want butterflies forever, by the way. Let me tell you. Oh, yeah, why do they wear off? Because you'd have stomach problems if you had butterflies every day, okay? And those relationships that come from butterflies aren't as deep as lasting relationships, right, with kids and, and, and time and investment into a relationship. But you could go through experience in like junior high or whatever and, you know, you break up and that's so painful. Some of you, if I said raise your hand if you went through that, don't raise your hand because your spouse might be extra jealous. Who was that? <laughs> you know, but th it's painful and it's barely even a little relationship. And then you hear a song on the radio, you're like, oh, it kills you, right? Another reason not to listen to that junk music anymore, right? That the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth be glorified to you, Lord, amen? So, but we're talking about the eternal God, one with the Father, from eternity past, no beginning. And all of a sudden, he becomes the fixation of the judgment everybody else deserves, and the Father's wrath falls upon him. So we talk about darkness and separation. Uh, this study, I want to talk about two other things. Uh, the torment of Satan, okay? Uh, the torment of Satan. He didn't become an emaciated demoniac as Kenneth Copeland, one of the word faith teachers, has taught. He didn't become possessed or anything like that. Satan had nothing in him. He was innocent, pure, undefiled son of God, amen? But he was afflicted by Satan, Okay? He was attacked by Satan. And one thing that happened as a result of our rebellion and part of our punishment was God allowed us to fall under torments of the evil one. The Bible says we know that we are of God in 1 John 5, 19, but the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Now, Jesus was never under Satan's power in the sense of, uh, you know, like I said, possessed or anything like that, but he was afflicted heavily by Satan. And... I believe he was afflicted more than anybody else because it says he was tempted in all ways like unto us, yet without sin, amen? So I believe he was tempted more than anybody during his life, but I believe his affliction was ramped up at the cross. Remember when he was in the wilderness and three waves of temptation came upon him? 
If you're the son of God, you know, jump, you know, show them who you are. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. His angels will bear thee up, right? Satan even quotes scripture, right? Trying to get Jesus to rebel. Satan does that. He'll quote scripture out of context to make you think you rebel against God and everything's cool. Not so. Jesus said, well, he rebuked him, basically. He quoted scripture. It's written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. One of the other temptations there was to, you know, bow down and worship him. Jesus said to Satan, it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. Get behind me, Satan. Right? But one of the other ones was very interesting. He said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Right? And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Amen? And it's interesting, though, because that's a very interesting temptation. It's proof. Come on, show that you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, do this. Well, guess what? He was being radically tempted. I believe Satan was hammering him in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to discourage him from going. Right? Because it was called the hour of darkness. I think three times in the Gospels. It's interesting. And then, certainly, Satan was using Judas because it says Satan possessed Judas's body, right? And inspired him to betray Jesus. So satanic forces, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And there's special attack for believers. You know that, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, right? We're in a wrestling match. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, non-believers, they go through a lot of stuff too. Before I was a Christian, when I was in my teens, I was rebellious. I got pretty tormented by Satan. In fact, he overplayed his hand, I believe, because that's became, I became aware, like, whoa, there's spiritual darkness. That must mean there's a good God. I mean, I cried out to God, got delivered, found Jesus Christ. Uh, he revealed himself to me by his grace, and it made me very aware of the spiritual world. Well, guess what, man? Believers have, Satan just tries to keep the world blind, but he attacks believers in a special way because we're the enemy he wants to discourage us so he possessed judas and it's interesting when we look at the scripture that now we don't know that he suffered hell in the sense that hell because the scripture is not real clear as far as i mean many people picture hell demonic entities attacking people throughout eternity it's not real clearly that states that I know uh, Michael Heiser and others believe that because that there's something going on like that because the Ain community, uh, ancient Near Eastern communities, many of them believe that. And I can't go that far because I see other people believing something in a certain community. I believe God's truth is revealed in his word and we need to go with that. And it's not clear that that happens. Uh, so I'm not going to say that. I don't like to go ever beyond what's written. But what is very interesting is Satan, when he goes to Lake of Fire, right, is... He gets tormented by the people he deceived. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? In fact, listen to Isaiah chapter 4. You can go there for 14. Isaiah 14, verse 9. Or verse 9 says, Sheol, which is equivalent to Hades in the New Testament. Uh, but in this context, Sheol can refer to either to Hades or Gehenna, actual hell. Hades and Gehenna are two different places. Hades is a holding tank. It's like the county jail where you wait for sentencing. So people who die now that, that reject Jesus, they go to this holding facility, kind of like the county jail, awaiting their final judgment and sentence to Gehenna, which is a lake of fire. Uh, we know that because the Bible says in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that uh, at the great white throne judgments, 
judgment after Christ's second coming, after millennial reign of Christ, uh, heaven and earth will pass away. Then they'll be suspended in time, it looks like, you know, or suspended between the new creation and the old creation, this, this great white throne judgment, and everyone whose name that's not found written in the last book of life, after they're resurrected, they're, re- they're brought up from the dead. And Hades and death and those whose names aren't written in the book of life, Lamb's book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire where Satan has already been thrown and the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. And they're resurrected. So, and Hades is thrown there in the Gehenna as well. Death and Hades. So we know that's more like the federal penitentiary. Man, that's where you go for life, but for eternity. And that's a horrible thing. But what's interesting is Satan is thrown into Sheol, which I, I, I misspoke. Would it be equivalent to Hades? It would be equivalent to Gehenna or the lake of fire because Satan never goes to Hades that we know of. But he goes to Gehenna and we read, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond to you and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven. King James says, O Lucifer, NASB, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. That was an interesting, that's very interesting that there's torment that goes on in in, uh, in the lake of fire. And there's torment Satan's being tormented by people that are ticked off. Look at you, man. Spoke a good game, but you're just like, you're, you're reduced to like a worm. The only power Satan has is the power God gives him. Then God withdraws that power, and he's left there. So it's kind of interesting because uh, Jesus suffered torment on the cross, mocking on the cross, didn't he? And in Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 38. It says in Matthew 27, verse 38, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you are are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it three days. Save yourself. Listen to this. If you are what? If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Does that sound familiar? Satan said, if you're the son of God, what? Turn these stones to bread. I think this is interesting, the irony, because Satan has said, hey, look what you were, but now look who you are. Now you have these guys hurling abuse, saying, echoing, I believe they're just saying thoughts that Satan's put in their minds. They're saying their own fleshly thoughts too. But if you are the son of God, he says, or they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, Thanks, bro. Along with the scribes and elders, when you're married, you just see your wife, you know something's going on. Oh, she wants the keys, boom. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, In the same way, the chief priests also along with us. Doug is not my wife, by the way. If you're visiting. Okay, let's get that clear. I saw my wife back there and she's like, and I'm like, she must want the keys because Doug came up here and that's all I have to give her. She's got the money, so hey. (laughs) True story, but... She gives me an allowance, so to speak. Just kidding. (laughs) If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, verse 41, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, 
He saved others. He could not save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him, uh, let him now come down from the cross. There it is again. And we will believe in him. That's amazing. That's amazing because there's echoes from the wilderness temptations right there, right? You can see a little understanding of what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know? And he's being harassed. And when you look at that, I believe there's an allusion there to, with all this going on to Psalm chapter 22, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet 900 years before, right? They divided my garments among them. That's the Roman soldiers it's referring to. And all these other things it talks about. My bones are out of joint, you know? You know, all these different things. But listen to what he said in Psalm 22. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Now, were there literal bulls and lions at the cross? It's interesting. What, what's this referring to? Well, the bulls of Bashan were, or Bashan, they were, they were bulls that were raised on the east of the Jordan, and they, which was known for its fertility, and just huge bulls over there, right? And those that lived there worshipped evil spirits, and they sacrificed to Baal, or Baal, and he was pictured in the form of a bull. And if you look at the four faces of the cherubim, they have four different faces. And Satan is a fallen cherub. It says that the face of a man and a lion and an eagle and a man. Interesting. But what's really interesting to me is when it says the four faces, one time it leaves it out in Ezekiel. The face of a man and a lion and the face of an eagle and the face of a cherub. I just make the deduction, hmm, what's it leaving out there? And then I get the basic idea of what Satan looks like in his essence. And that leaves out the bull right there, the face of the bull, calls the face of a cherub. So Satan's face in some way looks kind of bullish. I think of the, no offense for you, you know, Chicago Bulls fans, but I look at that and I'm like, yeah, that's probably what he looks like a little bit. I don't know for sure. We don't know. It's just kind of interesting. It shows four faces as this cherub, and we know Satan's an anointed cherub, Ezekiel chapter 28. And it mentions his, the four faces of cherubs, which are good angels, but he's a fallen cherub, right? And when it leaves out one of the faces and puts his, the cherub face, like that's the essence of what the cherub, cherub looks like most, I guess, or personifies its nature the most, it seems like bull is there. And it's interesting, the bulls. By the way, lions. Lions, he says, right? Uh, they open their mouth, roaring lions. <laughs> Isn't it not just lions, roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Where's the other place you read about a roaring lion? 1 Peter 5.8 says to Christians, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, walks about as a what? Roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about there. He's not talking about literal lions. So I believe there's satanic attack on him. In fact, I have no doubt about it. In some d degree or another, there's a radical satanic attack. And I believe it was more radical than what Job experienced or anybody else because he's the son of God. And go to Luke chapter 22. I think this is a a really clear scripture that he was experiencing satanic forces and not just human forces. Because the Bible says we don't wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. But against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of the world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And we go to Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 52. Verse 
52 and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him. See, they came to rest him and everything, right? Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Then Jesus says, while I was with you daily in the temple, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not uh, lay hands on me. Then this way he says, but this is the hour and the power, but I'm sorry, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. When he's talking about the rule of this world, he talks about the power of darkness. Three times he calls Satan the ruler of this world. And now he says to these leaders who are conspiring with Judas, who's possessed by Satan, that they're being used by the powers of darkness. So at the cross, it wasn't just humans, guys. He was being tormented and afflicted and persecuted by satanic powers. Do you understand that? So the words were perfectly calculated to get him to fall. And he did not, amen? And have any of you gone under spiritual attack like that where you feel like Satan's after you? It's real intense. Just magnify that by thousands of times, okay? We start to get a glimpse of what Jesus went through for us, amen? He bore the penalty that we deserve, amen? So, and this is an interesting uh, study because I wanted to, I have several ways that he experienced what we should be experiencing on the cross beyond what we typically look at. And I've done it, I decided to go into the series because I believe that, uh, you know, so much of what I'm sharing with you is an answer to my prayer that we might understand what kind of pain he entered into to redeem us and how much he loves us, amen? So we might appreciate him more. We might want to worship him more and glorify him more. Now, we've looked at darkness. We looked at separation, a sense of separation. We looked at satanic attack, right? Torment, satanic torment. And number four, I just want to talk about plain old pain. Plain old pain. Uh, when man fell, what was the penalty of our fall? Well, I mean, we talked about it. Wow, darkness, yep. Separated from God, yep. Right? Uh, you know, handed over to Satan, yep. Well, also pain. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field course you know we haven't even got to the thorns and thistles but what did jesus wear on his head crown of thorns amen it's not an accident you guys okay but pain and i'm not speaking now specifically of the crown of thorns although that will come up in the study uh a little bit maybe that's one of my favorite things to look at because god says as a result of the thorns and thistles that we owe that are owed us that he bore our curse cursed is the ground because of you You'll have pain in your toil. And by the way, women would have more, they'd have increased what? Pain in their childbearing. But the Bible says in Galatians 3.13, you know, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Amen? Right? He redeemed us from the curse of the law because the Bible says, you know, bearing became a curse for us, it goes on to say. Because cursed, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He bore our curse, but I want to speak specifically about the pain element of that curse. Now, it's interesting because 
the non-believer does not understand the cross. I have to say, before I was a Christian, I had no idea what the cross meant. You know, I thought, you know, listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And this is how the world of Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world looked at the cross. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to you who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. So to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. Sometimes I'll, you know, what you can witness to somebody when people witness on the streets and they mock the cross and mock Christianity. I'll t- you tell them, hey, the Bible says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You just take out the sword of God's word. Give him a little jab. I mean, no, that's what you bring conviction. And it's like, well, it says that, and I'm mocking. I mean, because you want them to understand the cross. It goes on to say, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in... uh, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than man, that's for sure. Cross is foolishness to those who perish. It's an offense to the Jew and to the Greek. In fact, to the Jew, they'd only skip Isaiah 53. But the cross, they don't even want, like to write it as a T. They, the letter T, they write the, the letter in English. In, he, in, in Israel, the kids in their schools, public schools, they can't write it like a cross. They don't do that. Stay away from the cross. It's kind of interesting when you think of this. But the pain that Jesus went through, uh, and, you know, we only have, wow. What time are we going to now? What's that? 8.30? Good, I've got 21 minutes. Okay. Jonathan, give me the sign, you know, when I get 10 minutes left. Thanks, bro. I know he does it on Sundays, but maybe not on Wednesdays as much. But I need it. Uh, I want to talk about the pain he went through a little bit. And by the way, we could spend a whole time on the power of darkness. Spend a whole Sunday, several Sundays on the pain he went through, right? And all that. But I want to cover two at a time if I can, usually. Because I want to cover more ground. But I don't want to whip through all. I didn't want to give it all in one Sunday and go through all the ones I have. I have many of them that he went through. The hell that he bore on the cross. But uh, just think the pain that he went through, you know. One thing they did is they would strip you naked because you're humili- It's about being humiliated. And in that culture, that was especially humiliated, man. I mean, they wouldn't even show their legs for the most part. I mean, it was like an embarrassment. For a man to run, he'd have to hike up his robe and run. In public, it was considered a shame. Well, Jesus was stripped naked. Okay, and they flogged him and they, they whipped him and over and over again. I think the Greek word mean, can be translated incessantly. Just and those whips they had were the, the flagellums. They were like these short little whips, right? Remember those whips they had? We've talked about them before, but they had long strands of leather 
And you remember what was at the end of these things? Like ball bearings. Like we would say like balls of lead actually. And man, they, these guys, by the way, keep in mind, these guys weren't just like, oh, you want me to whip him? No, this was their job to be as, inflict as much pain as possible because the objective was to cause everybody to freak out and say, I'm never going to do anything wrong against the state. And they just whipped him. And I don't want to, you know, make it sound too gruesome, but it was really, really gruesome because it, these, the way it was meant, the first time you get, you're getting whipped, the first few times, it's, it's, it's causing an abrasion, right? And it's, but it doesn't immediately, well, sometimes it immediately breaks the skin, but it's also, it's bruising the tissue under your skin, the subcutaneous tissue under the skin. It's not just breaking the blood vessels that are at the top of the skin, but subcutaneous blood vessels that are also in the tissue. It's bruising them radically. And, and then you begin lacerated. And then before you know it, your, your back begins to uh, get lacerated to where it's like ribbons are just torn in your back and flesh is sticking out. Horrible. And keep in mind, the scriptures tell us that they mocked him and they shoved a crown of thorns into his head. And there at the courtyard, when they wanted kindling to burn fires, they had plants there that would, you know, have thorn bushes there. And they could weave, and they weaved a crown of thorns and stuck it on his head. He's bearing our pain that we deserve. And by the way, they gave him a robe, right? A, a, a robe that was scarlet purplish, you know. And they put that robe on him. And what's going to happen to that robe after it sits on your back for a while, long while? After you're all bloody. You ever have a band-aid pulled off of you? Just a band-aid? Could be painful, right? It would soak up, right, Jimmy, and dry. And then they gave him a reed. They gave him a stick, and they put it in his hand because they're mocking him, king of the Jews. They were bowing down to him. They stuck a bag over his face. Okay. And then they'd punch him, it says, over and over again. And if I started going to all the different texts that say all these things, I wouldn't be able to go through the, as much information as I want to get out right now. I just, and there's so many things I can say that I'm not going to say because I want to cover the torment from the evil one and the pain he endured that we deserve. But they stuck a bag over his head, then they'd bam, punch him in the head, bam, over and over again. Now, you ever get cold cocked or you ever get hit when you're not expecting it? Caused a lot of damage. Because you can flinch, but if you're playing football or something and all of a sudden a hit comes from a direction you weren't expecting, or you get hit in a car, you don't see it coming, you can't even brace. Over and over again, they punch him in the face. And can you imagine that? And they're saying, tell us, prophet. If you're a prophet, who prophesied? Or prophesied, tell us who punched you. And they've got, keep in mind, he's, it's the power of darkness that's at work. These people are being used by Satan, man. And they're extracting, and these are experts at afflicting pain. Bam! Over and over again, they punched him in the face. Right? Then they took that rod away from him, and they smashed him over the head, it says. Can you imagine? Crown of thorns being smashed in your head now. Oh, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says not only did they whip his back, but it says they, they pulled out my beard. Jimmy, you got a beard that looks like someone could pull, try to pull it out. Imagine that would hurt, right? I purposely do this in case that doesn't happen, you know. No, I'm just kidding. 
But bro, I can't imagine. Can you imagine if you went up to Jimmy and just started yanking his beard out? He couldn't do anything about it? So much so that the Bible tells us that Jesus' face was what? In Isaiah 53. Marred beyond that of any other man's. I personally believe that it was marred in such a way that when he rose from the dead, that's one reason that he couldn't be recognized at first. Because, and that's what's going to make us love him even more in heaven. Because in Revelation chapter 5, when there's this, you know, there's this seven-sealed scroll that no one can open in heaven or on earth or under the earth because no one's found worthy. And John begins to weep and cry because nobody, he knows it has to be opened to bring forth, you know, God's will on the earth. And John's told, stop weeping. The line of the tribe of Judah, right? Right? He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Has conquered, right? And he is found worthy to open the scroll. And then Jesus gets up from the right hand of the Father. And John, instead of saying, then I saw the line of the tribe of Judah, he says, I saw one who was slain as a lamb. I praise God that Jesus still bears his scars for us. He sees him as scarred. That is just mind-boggling. He sees him as scarred still. Remember when Thomas said, I won't believe unless I what? See the nail prints in his hands, right? Unless I stick my fingers in his side. What does Jesus do when he appears to him with the other disciples? He says, here I am, Thomas. Go ahead. Thomas falls down. My Lord and my God. He didn't even have to do it. It was so obvious because he was burying those marks. Well, why would these scars still be there but not the scars on his face? You, you with me? Consistency says that his face is scarred all over. Think about that. That blows me away. I believe there's a lot of reasons we're not going to have to battle with sin in heaven. One reason is because Satan is going to be in the lake of fire. Amen? Another reason is, is because we no longer have the flesh to fight against. Amen? And we no longer have temptation in this world. The world, the flesh, the devil, they're all past. But another reason is, we'll see Jesus and we'll see his great love for us and it'll be so amazing that we couldn't even think of rebelling against such love. That should affect us right now in our own Christian walks, right? Let that affect you in the here and now. Be true to him. Don't be a Judas. Don't betray him. Stay faithful to him. Amen? Now, it's, it's mind-boggling. And now, you not only have this whole situation, the beard getting pulled out, punched over and over again. You know, rod hit on the head with a crown of thorns and back lacerated, looks like hamburger meat, you know. Blood oozing. And then after some time, they take that robe and they rip it off its back. which you can imagine he must be losing a lot of fluid. He already lost some in Gethsemane, right? Where he's sweating. He only drank the night before. I mean, we don't have any record of him drinking, I'm sorry, after that night or after his arrest. And then he was up all night in trial. Can you imagine? He's already, you would think, delirious, right? And now he's going to go and get these nails five to seven inches long nailed into his hands. 
Mind-boggling. Yet, why did he do this? Because of his love for us, amen? I love one of my favorite verses in Revelation is Revelation 1.6. We think of God's love for us. God, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in should not perish but have eternal life. But I love, I love 1.6 as well. Unto him, Jesus now, who loves us. King James says, who loved us. But the Greek is not in the aorist or past tense. It's in the present tense. Unto him who loves us. NASB has it right there. Unto him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He loves us, man. He loved us and he loves us. Amen. Both are true. And he will continue to love us. So it's really mind-boggling. And I, uh, when you think about it, so painful on the cross when they nail, and I don't have time to get into it right now, the details, but I've, been read, I've read the details of this over and over again. I read the details of this again and again. I read again today, and it's amazing when they, the, the nails, which most, you know, medical scholars will say it was probably right here in this part of the hand and the wrist, because it, it says not one bone was broken, and you can hammer a big nail through the, that's considered part of the hand, too, in a, the part of the hand that is also part of the wrist, you can nail it there. And what it does is it just, it, it, it really causes a ton of pain to nerves in the hands to where your hand could even go numb. Often your, they say your hand would actually get paralyzed at that point. Not saying that he's dead, but man, the way he's hanging, now he's hanging on those things. And the pressure of those nails just would cause shock to his body. When we throw that <laughs> cross into the ground, that would cause an intense amount of pain. Now, it's very, very interesting when you read about uh, this because I was looking at the church fathers and what the church fathers said about the crucifixion today. And I thought, oh, this is quite interesting because Tertullian, who's a church father, early church father that coined the term Trinity, he said that trees were used for crucifixion in the first century A.D. And that's true. They were... Uh, but also crosses, which are made out of trees. The Bible says he was, he was crucified on the cross or crucified on a tree. It uses both languages, language of a similar language, both. But it's interesting, Irenaeus, who's one of my favorite apologists in the second century, favorite church father, actually, him and Justin Martyr, uh, he describes how there was an upright and a traverse beam, two beams used in Christ's crucifixions, crucifixion, uh, with a small projection, with a small projection in the upright. And which is interesting, when you look at other accounts in Rome of the crucifixions, you'll see sometimes there was a seat. So some believe that Jesus had, Irenaeus believes he had a seat because they want to prolong. The idea of crucifixion was to torture you as much as possible in a public way, but have you lose the least amount of blood to keep you alive for a certain amount of time. They'd still whip you because you got to die. They want you up there for weeks, amen? But they want you to suffer. They want to, they want to uh, kind of regulate how long it takes you to die. Now, he says there were five extremities, okay? And one of these extremities was uh, Justin Martyr, actually. What's interesting, you say, oh, that would make it easier. That would make it easier because you're sitting on a seat. So some believe Jesus may not have had a seat, and that's very possible that he used the nail to push himself up because you'd have to breathe. So you'd be going like this, and when you're going like this, you get asphyxiate. You could, you could breathe, so you push yourself up on that nail. It'd be a lot of, a lot of uh, pain. But here's something today, and I've shared on the crucifixion several times through the years, but I never saw this. 
Well, let's look at the early church fathers. Justin Martyr calls a seat a cornu that you'd sit on, that you'd be able to sit on to rest. You know what the cornu means? Horn. So the seat was like a horn. So you got your grand man, you're like moving around, and if you wanted to rest, you'd have to be sitting on something that would, like a javelin, you know, that would be very, 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 very painful. Uh, so many scholars believe that Justin Martyr was saying he was basically using, they used a horn as a seat to cause more and more pain. Wow. Pain. What are some of the words, what are some synonyms for the word pain? Something that's really painful. Give me some words. I'm looking for one specific one. What's that over here? What's that? Torture. He was definitely tortured. That's why the cross was torture. Excruciating, a couple of you said. Agony. The word excruciating was invented to describe what? The cross. It's a Latin word. Okay. Excruciating. And excru-c-r-u, right? Excruciating from the c-r-u-x. Crux means, is Latin for cross. And excruciating means out of the cross. It's the pain that comes out of being crucified. Isn't that amazing? So when Jesus is on the cross, that pain, they actually had to invent a word because that's a special kind of pain. And keep in mind, the special kind of pain he's going through, when the thieves were on the cross, they're not going through all this torment from Satan. They're not going through a sense of the wrath of God that for everybody else in the world, upon yourself as Jesus is going through. They're not experiencing the darkness being pointed at you as the wrath of God and the pain that we're talking about here that's spiritual along with physical. And they weren't whipped over and over again like Jesus with a, with a, you know, a robe put on and ripped off their back and a bag put over their head and punched over and over again saying prophesy and a, a crown of thorns put on them. They didn't even go through physically or spiritually what Jesus went through. Are you with me? Amen. But what we do find out in Scripture is this. He went through literally excruciating pain and the most pain, he went through the most painful thing anybody could experience because he loves us, man. You know, just before his seventh saying on the cross, his seventh saying on the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he put his head down and gave up the spirit. He chose when to die. Jesus says, he don't, no man takes my life from me. I lay my life down for my sheep. This was something he decided to do, Amen. But that was the seventh saying on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because this, what he said, and he could commit, his, commit himself because he was bearing the, because it, it was before he died that he made this other statement right before that. It is what? It is finished. Because he was bearing the penalty on the cross, not just when his body, you know, he's bearing the wrath of God on the cross. It wasn't just that he died, it was the way he died. He experienced the wrath of God. If he just, you know, God didn't just give him a sleeping pill, too many sleeping pills. Okay, Jesus, you died for everybody. He had to bear the wrath of God in his body on the cross. And that included death. He had to die. Amen? Because that was ultimately what he had to experience was death. But he was experiencing those things associated with the death that we deserve and punishment from God. Are you with me? 
And I believe, and I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong on this. But, you know, some people suggest he had lost so much strength that when he said, it is finished, it was like a, a whisper. It is finished. I don't think so. I think Jesus took whatever strength that was left in him to exclaim triumphantly, it is finished! And then he knew he used the last of his strength because he picked the right time to say that. Then he laid his head down and died because it was a triumphant exclama exclamation. Amen? It is finished. Now, he could have whispered it. I don't know. I wasn't there. We weren't there. We don't have it recorded exactly how he said it. But I believe he used everything he had left in him to just cry out. It is finished. And he didn't want anybody to miss it. To tell us die. That's what he yelled. To tell us die. Paid in full. And that was a term we've talked about before. That was used when you paid for a certain piece of merchandise. They'd write to Telestai, paid in full. It's all paid for. Or if you were in prison and you did your time, they'd have your sentence, to say the few crimes you committed that weren't punishable by death perhaps, and then they could write to Telestai. You could take your placard home to Telestai. Romans, it's finished. I'm, I'm free. What Jesus had written on his cross, just like the two robbers was his alleged crime now the robbers had crimes amen when it said jesus you know when it said king of the jews in three languages was that a crime no he was the son of david he was from the line of judah he was the rightful king prophesied to come in the future amen he's the king of kings the lord of lords amen it should have said you know he is the king of kings lord of lords and they wanted Jesus, hey, don't write king of the Jews. Write that he said king of the Jews. The Jews said to Pilate, he goes, what I've written, I've written. That was God saying, nope, I'm overruling this one. <laughs> king of the Jews. Amen. And when he said it is finished, he wasn't saying it's finished because I paid for my crime. He was without sin. He paid for whose crimes? Ours. The, the, all the darkness, all the judgment, all the wrath, all the pain all the torment that we deserve fell on him, amen? So he could say it is finished and so we can put our faith in him and pass from death to what? Eternal life, amen? So this Sunday, I've been working on a message uh, for Sunday morning, sunrise, and then a message for Sunday morning when I preach here. And I'm really excited about what we're gonna talk about. Uh, but I wanted to really hone in on the crucifixion more and we'll talk about the crucifixion a little bit there and from a different, couple different angles. And then we'll also talk about the resurrection. But you guys, praise God you're here today. Praise God you're listening by live stream. I want to, let's take just a minute out and, and, and tell the Lord thank you in our own way. I'm going to pray just for uh, shortly. And then we're all just going to pray silently for a minute. And then I'll say amen. Then we'll all rise. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. And we thank you for your incredible goodness to us and your great love. We thank you, Father, for the love of your Son, which mirrors your love, Father, and how it must have tormented your heart to pour your wrath on him. We just love you, Father, so much. We love your Son. We give you thanks for what he's done on the cross. In your own words, just tell the Lord, and even if you're watching by live stream, just bow your heart and say, Lord, thank you so much. Help us to appreciate what he did